if you saw the video response on Friday, you heard me say that Christianity Today had an article this week that did an extensive survey that said that, and this was the headline, young people do not want their pastors to be hip. I found this profoundly reassuring and a corroboration of my longtime strategy that I've been in operation for the last 16 years with people wondering, what's he up to? It's all a strategy of unhipness. It's yet another reason why you shall never see me wear skinny jeans. There were a lot of other reasons besides that one. And in keeping with that theme, we are preaching from Judges, which is about the most unhip thing I can think of. Unsexy, Thomas. But it's a pretty magnificent book, and it's strange, and it's a bit bewildering. And it's also very hard, frankly, so you can pray for me, to know how on earth am I to do this. Like today, this story takes place over two chapters. So I figure an hour per chapter, so you all are good with that, right? No, what am I supposed to do? Well, I'm trying my best and praying through it, and we'll see what happens. But I'm going to try to walk you through some of these things and make some observations along the way. But if you were, if you were sitting around a campfire at Camp Vesper Point, singing songs, and then eating some s'mores, and then a story came on, this would, this would rivet you if we said, once upon a time, in a land far far away, there was a ruthless king, and this ruthless king had a military officer who led his armies, who was even more dangerous and more vile, worse than any villain in a Mel Gibson movie. And as he led these people, this king... What happened was the people who lived there started to become really sad. Their lives started to fall apart. Their, their farms and their families and their economies started to break down. There was social disintegration that happened all over the place. Human life as it was intended to be wasn't happening anymore. But there were three people, three people that God wanted to use to do something about it, to help all of these poor people who were being oppressed by this evil king and his ruthless war-mongering leader. One was a woman who sat beneath a tree. The other, a man whose name was Lightning. The third... A femme fatale, staying in a tent with a tent peg and a mallet. Dun, dun, dun. What's going to happen? I've just set up a story for you that begins in, De- in chapter 4 of Judges, and then there is a poetry version of it in chapter 5. I encourage you to read these things sometime today, or maybe even this week to jog your memory about what we talked about today. But after Ehud, 
the left-handed assassin who cross-drew for his right leg and lost his sword in the Jabba the Hutt. I think that was his name. After he died, the Israelites did that thing again. They scrubbed God out of their own consciousness. And they were lured by the sexiness, Thomas, I'm going to keep doing this, of the Canaanites. They had been reading Canaanite magazines. They had been watching Canaanite television shows. They're like, man, the Canaanites, their friends all live together, and they have such pretty haircuts, and they're, they, don't even, they don't even work, but they have nice apartments, and they have so much fun. The Canaanites are awesome. We want to be like them. Oh, but the Canaanites don't ever say anything about this God. They don't have anything to do with him. But their lives seem so dashing. And so the Israelites were told, did evil again in the eyes of the Lord. They kept wanting to be like the nations around them. They wanted their styles and their ways of being. They wanted to adopt their values. And so we're told that the Lord, remember this is a pattern. The Israelites do evil. They forget to remember the Lord. And then the Lord sells them. This time sells them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan. And Jabin is kind of like saying the Pharaoh of Egypt. Just another word for a king of Canaan. The Lord sold them. Like into slavery. And you got to remember from the outset, whatever God does with his people and the judgments he brings upon his enemies, these are not because... He's a cantankerous, curmudgeonly God who's got a short fuse. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. He gave 40 years of peace after Ehud had died. Isn't it 40 years? 80 years, my bad. 80, 80, 80, 80 years. As long as you have to wait in line at Walmart when you have some milk. Thank you for the three. See, you make a joke, and then you lose your train of thought, and you don't know even where you are anymore on the planet. Somebody help me here. Where was I? Yeah, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Not helpful, Corby. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's what I needed. That's the key I needed. You said the right thing, but it didn't help me. God isn't cantankerous. So what happens is, God has this aversion to cancer of human life. These cells that revolt autonomously against the the cells that make for human flourishing. And so this is what sin and rebellion against God always does. Anytime anybody starts to serve created things and forgets God. Anytime anybody starts to do what is right in their own eyes and doesn't listen to their master, what invariably happens is degradation. People become less than human. The strongest people take advantage of the weakest people. The weakest people have no recourse. They might act badly because they have no recourse and they don't know what else to do. You see that maybe even on your television screen. Whenever... People forget God. Human rebellion starts to eat up humanity. And God can't tolerate that because he loves life. Because he loves people. 
And so he's always going to fight against it. The chemotherapy of his wrath is going to fight against the cancer of rebellion in humanity. And so he sells his people into the hands of the Canaanites so that they will turn back to him. So that they will have Canaan beat out of them. So that they can be who they're supposed to be. And this king of Canaan, Jabin, had a commanding officer named Sisera. Who lived in Harosheth Pagoyim. Pagoyim. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. The Israelites had plastic swords compared to the iron chariots. These military drones of their day that we had here at the turn of the Bronze Age into the Iron Age. The Sisera wiped out everybody. He kept the Israelites suppressed and subdued. And so, as God intended, in their distress... They cry out to the Lord. And he answers their cry for help by this woman, Deborah. Deborah, we're told, is a prophetess. A prophetess like Miriam. Someone in whom God has decided to put his words. Someone who speaks for God to the people. The wife of Lapidoth, she was leading Israel at this time. And she held court under the palm of Oh, Deborah, fortunately enough. Deborah led court under the palm of Deborah, not under the palm of Susie, which is fortuitous. There's like two people listening. I like this. And you're like, well, we're listening, but you, you can't expect us to laugh at stupidity. You're like a four-year-old telling jokes that aren't jokes. I've heard that before, too. Four-year-olds tell knock-knock jokes that they have no suspense and they have no catch. Okay, in the hill country of Ephraim, the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. Deborah, it turns out, is never mentioned. She's never called a judge, but she is called a prophetess, and she's said to be leading Israel, and she turns out in the book of Judges to be the only leader of the people of Israel who leads as a a wise and godly leader, not as a military might. She actually sits there under, these, under this palm of Deborah, just like maybe King Saul would have sat beneath this pomegranate tree with a war council of 600 out in the open, and the Israelites would come to her with their disputes like they would come to Moses with their disputes back in the day. He sold me this old car. The engine's done got locked up on him. What am I supposed to do about this? And she'd sort it out. She keeps stealing my roses. I'm being silly. Whatever their disputes, economic, relational, social, the kinds of things that plague and aggravate human life, they would bring these to Deborah, we're told, and she would settle the disputes. She had much wisdom. She had the words for God, from God. And she sends for Barak, lightning. Not Barack Obama, Barak, son of Abinoim from Kedesh and Naphtali. And she says to him, here is a commandment from the Lord. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go to Zebulun and Naphtali and get 10,000 warriors, and you're going to go wipe up the place 
against Sisera on Mount Tabor. I will go on a little fishing expedition to Sisera and I'll reel him into Mount Tabor and give him into your hands and you'll gut him like a junk fish. Barak says to her, if you go with me, okay, good, I'll do it. I like these insuperable odds. I like the sound of getting destroyed. I'll go if you'll come with me. Pause. Commentary. This story has often been told as if Barak was a sissy. He's been told by this woman to go into battle. And he says, I ain't going into battle unless you come with me. And so the NIV, the way they translate this, Deborah says, well, very well, but because of the way you're going about this, the honor won't be yours. The honor is going to be given to a dang woman. The Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. You're not going to get any glory out of this. That's how I've always heard this talked about. But what's interesting is that there is another reading and everything comes down to translation, of course. Just like, have you heard the expression, uh, let's eat, gra- let's eat, comma, grandma. Let's eat, no comma, grandma. Let's eat, comma, grandma. Let's eat, grandma. Punctuation saves lives. When you have the comma there after let's eat, then grandma is a, is a, invited guests to share dinner with you when you don't have the comma grandma is the dinner don't eat grandma see it's funny that's hilarious i think thank you you make me feel very good about myself but the esv translates this as a a little text note alternate reading at the bottom of your niv may say that Deborah says to him, Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then she goes with him. She doesn't rebuke him. She, as a prophet, makes a statement of what's going to happen. In other words, hey, Barak, I'm going to go with you, but let, I just want you to know that this expedition that you're on is not going to result in your getting glory. You're not going to have lots of people tweeting about you. There's not going to be any fanfare interviews for you later. You're certainly not going to Disney World. Someone else is going to get the glory for this victory. Which makes Barack even not so much an ignoble character, but a noble one who's willing by faith to walk into a situation where he knows he's not going to get the glory. He's obeying Deborah. And by asking for her to go with him, he's not saying, I'm scared, I need you to come along. He's saying, as Moses said, as Gideon will later say, hey, I know I've got a divine calling here. Uh, Is there any way you can give me some authentication of that calling? You know, when Moses was called by God out of that talking bush that was on fire to go to Pharaoh, he's like, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh yeah. I grew up in his household. He doesn't like people to go to him and tell him to let all of his free slave labor go. That's bad for the Egyptian economy. He's not going to like that. When did you want me to go? Tuesday? Yeah, that's, I've got a dermatologist appointment. Have you seen this thing on my wrist? 
Moses makes a number of excuses. Please don't let me go. I'm too short. I smell funny. I don't know how to talk good. All these kinds of things. He's just imagining with all kinds of fear. And he says, God, I don't want to go. And God says, here, here's a staff. Throw it down and it'll become a snake. It's awesome. Turn water into blood. You'll have all these cool tricks. He needs authentication. He needs some sense that God's going with him. He even says later, when they're after this episode at Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments are broken, he says to God, when God says, go up from here, go to the land of Canaan, he says, if your presence does not go with us, I don't want to go. See, he's come to know, I can't do an impossible task without the God who can reverse the impossible. I can't go into a frightening battle without the God who is never frightened. I can't go up against an insurmountable enemy without the God who defeats and conquers all his enemies. I need you to go with me. And a number of commentators would say that's what he's recognizing with Deborah, that Deborah, like the Ark of the Covenant, Deborah, like these signs of authentication in Moses, that Deborah is a sign of the presence of God. God is with her in an exceptional way. She has been called. She has been given the words of God. He knows if I'm going into battle, she's going to be able to tell me the wishes of God. She can say, the Lord has commanded. This is the day. So he wants her with him because he wants God with him. And God is using Deborah as his instrument. Honoring her, leading his people through her. And helping Barak along the way. So she agrees to go. And here's the, so I hope I've explained that in a way that you'll not find satisfactory. Here's the thing, though. Barak agrees to go. Deborah has warned that you're not going to get any glory out of this. And one of the things you can see here, it's really worth seeing. Because Barak is later commended, along with some of the other judges like Samson and Gideon, The author of Hebrews famously says, I don't really have time to get into those, which is what every pastor has said about the book of Judges since the time began. I don't really have time to get into any of the Judges, so we won't, and that's what I've always done my whole life. But he's commended for his faith. He's commended. Barak is commended for his faith. And it's an amazing thing to think, here's what faith does. It so believes in the presence of God going out before us. That says, your word is so powerful and it works so powerfully within me that I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to respond to what you've called me to do, even if it's costly and even if I get no credit for it. Even if it's costly and even if I get no credit for it, I'm going to do it because you have dignified me and are worth my obedience. I'm going to listen to you. Ronald Reagan famously said, there's no end to what can be accomplished if you don't care who gets the credit. Have you heard that before? There's no end to what can be accomplished if you don't care who gets the credit. Some of you have been in settings like your family or your own head or a team or a department at a school. And you realize, wow, we can't get anywhere because we've got a kind of an ego struggle going on here. If everybody's interested in what's going to be accomplished and they submit themselves to that process, it's amazing what can happen. And Barak does that here. He listens to Deborah, who gives him the word of God, and he says, this is the word of God from this woman. I'm going to listen to it. 
and I'm going to go into a situation where I'm, I don't know what's going to happen. But God has said he's going to lead them into my hands, so I'm going to go up against these really impossible odds, and I'm not going to get any glory out of it. One writer once said, Christians know and always love to be called servants. We love to be called servants. You're such a servant. Mm, You're such a servant. But no Christian wants to be treated like a servant. You know that? Have you ever noticed that about yourself? Anybody, you can do all kinds of service, especially if someone writes you a note afterwards. Or someone gives you a story in the paper about it, or someone live tweets your magnificence. But if no one notices, like you keep serving the same people for Christ's sake, literally, in your house or you're at work, and none of them acknowledge how great it is, it's hard to keep going, isn't it? But as you're training yourself and you're saying, wait, I live before an audience of one, and one day this God will honor the people who who have waited and awaited for his coming. There's no end to what can be accomplished if you don't care who gets the credit. Barack demonstrates that as he and Deborah collaborate together. So Deborah goes with them, and as they're walking along, as they go, 10,000 men follow him as he gets to the region, and Deborah also goes with him. And now Haber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, and you're like, what in the world is this? Who is Haber? This is, you want me to do my Bible reading plan? You're introducing all these names I don't even know how to pronounce, and these people come out of nowhere? The descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law. Ah, oh, Moses' brother-in-law. I, I, I was confused. I, I thought he was Aaron's cousin. His mother's brother-in-law. And he pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanaim near Kedesh. So anyways, this guy has pitched a tent somewhere, which is not an extraneous detail, but it seems like that, because we're in the middle of a battle scene. We got 10,000 men up on Mount Tabor. We got a big fight about to come on. 900 iron charioted men, like knife through a hot butter conglomeration of 10,000 soldiers. There would be no match. These iron chariots would wipe them out. There's no match. The stage is set. And here's a guy pitching a tent over on the side here. Hmm. And when they told Sisera that Barak had gone up Mount Tabor, Sisera (laughs) rubs his hands together, summons his 900 iron chariots, and goes to the Kishon River at the base there. Soon Deborah says to Barak, this is why I wanted her. Go, the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? See, that's the important thing. This is what Christians want. This is what Moses wanted. This is what Barak needed to know that the divine warrior, when it says the Lord has gone out ahead of you, it's the divine warrior has gone to fight for you. He's out ahead of you. Jesus tells his disciples the same thing. I'll be with you till the end of the age. He's going out before us, the strong arm of the Lord, the divine warrior to conquer our enemies. And so at Barak's advance, the Lord, the Lord, not Barak, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera, Sisera was being chased down. They toppled his chariot. He got out and he took off running. 
wonder if there are any tents I could go to. Wait, I just remember a story. Somebody pitched a tent. Boom, over there. He goes to a tent. It's in hiding. He feels safe. Lovely Jael. We don't know if she's lovely. Sure, maybe, hopefully. And she, it makes the story better because she then says, because they're family friends. They know each other. They're allies. He thinks he'll be safe. And she says, oh, Sisera, you look famished. Are you thirsty? Come on in here and get some sweet tea. And I just, I just baked an apple pie. Come on in here, honey. She wasn't southern, but, you know, we're doing a thing here. And so he feels safe. He feels lured in. He violates all rules of Middle Eastern hospitality by going to his friend's wife's tent. He should have gone to his friend by asking to come into her tent. And then when he gets in there, he says, hey, by the way, can I get something to eat? Don't ask for something to eat. They offer you something to eat. Can I get some water? Don't ask for water. They can't offer you water. Hey, uh, do you mind if anybody comes here telling a lie for me? You don't ask people to lie for you? And also, the fact that he wants her to lie for him indicates that this is a dangerous dude. He's a wanted man. One of the cardinal rules of hospitality is when you go to someone's house, do not bring impending danger to them. Don't make them feel like if you come into their house, they're going to get bombed. She doesn't know what's going to happen. We're speculating here, but we learn later that Sisera, in this poem, that Sisera has his ladies. He's, he's been a war criminal who takes women to use and to abuse, which makes this story all the better because, like Jodie Foster and the brave one, if you ever saw that movie, who had been mugged and broken by an intruder, takes on this vigilante justice. We have Barak, I mean Sisera, tired and exhausted, and he's asked for water, but she gives him, she gives him some curdled milk with a little melatonin in it. Gets him nice and drowsy. That sweet tea, his blood sugar's up. He falls asleep. She gave him a little tryptophan as well. He falls asleep in exhaustion. And she takes out, remember I told you Quentin Tarantino meets the ancient Near East. She takes out a tent peg because women would be the ones who would set up the tents. So this was sort of like a household implement. She takes out her tent peg and she's like, where's my mallet? And she's looking around and looking in the drawer, and it's in her purse. She's got her mallet in her purse. And she pulls out her mallet, and she's got this tent peg. This will go perfectly in Sisera's temple. He was a side sleeper, fortunately. And she puts this temple peg, tent peg, on him and drives his head, drives it through his head into the ground, pinning him there. And in a classic sort of British understatement, it says she drove the peg into his temple and he died. (laughs) Who knew what was going to happen there? Barak finally finds where he's gone, and he's heading this way, and Jael comes outside her tent, 
It says, the man you're looking for is in here. The man you're looking for, with air quotes, is in here. And you can imagine perhaps Barack bowing up a little bit, getting his weapon out, ready to come in for this danger. And Jael's already taken care of it. There's a little mess. And this man has been pinned down by this woman. This man who has abused women, has, God has turned the tables on him and brought his justice to the cancer of this evil on the land. And on that day, we're told, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against the Canaanite king until they destroyed him. Now, if nothing else, now you know that story. If nothing else, now you know that God does pretty amazing things. He enlists the support of these three unlikely people to collaborate to subdue enemies in response to the prayers of people. And you've learned that there isn't any end, as Ronald Reagan said, and as this story shows in Barack's action and Jael's and Deborah's, to what can get done if you're not really that concerned about who gets the credit. And so the last thing I'll say about this as our sort of parting application, I could say lots and lots, but, you know, it's what we already did. It's a long story. But at the beginning of chapter 5, which I do hope you read, there's a poem about this. Some people say that maybe the oldest poem in the Hebrew Bible. I haven't gotten a chance to ask Scott Jones about that. But the first verse, Deborah and Barak are singing to the Lord after this episode. And it says, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. When the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. When the people make a free will offering of their lives to the Lord, that is a praiseworthy event. What you had here is a subjugated people, a people whose lives were falling apart, deteriorating and decaying, and you had some willing people who were willing to do something astonishing by faith. They were willing to collaborate with God to crush his enemies. They were willing to be used, even if it was costly. And so they willingly offered themselves. And apparently 10,000 soldiers also got in on the gig. So some willingly praised, brought praise by offering themselves. And at the end of this poem, we're told, but a curse, a curse be on those who did not come to help, who sat at home. And didn't offer themselves. And they didn't offer to help the Lord. Now that sounds like a funny thing. What do you mean they didn't offer to help the Lord? Is the Lord a little kid who doesn't know how to tie his shoe? Is the Lord a little guy whose arm's too short to reach up to grab a cup off the top cabinet? No. The Lord is someone who dignifies human life so immensely that he lets people act on his behalf. All the good that's going to happen in the world, so much of it is going to be through the work of the image of God, empowered by God himself. Praise the Lord when the people willingly offer themselves to God. And we are those... The church are those who have 
specifically in our time, had God pour out his life into us and said, you are the pilot project that's meant to show the world what happens to human life when it offers itself back up to God and the, the cancer, the degrading, debilitating rebellion goes away and people start to live like they're meant to. C.S. Lewis has said that God seems to delegate nearly everything to his creatures. Anything he could do instantly, he tends to offer to people to do in a blundering fashion. It's part of the way he dignifies us, either through prayer or through our work to help cause a future that has not been brought into being yet. And that's why the Bible would say, get these lenses on. That when Paul says, praise be to God, who comforts the downcast because he sent Titus to me. He recognizes that God works through his image. And the author of Hebrews says, don't give up for the Lord will repay you for the good that you have done to him as you have helped his people. Do you think about that as you go out into the world? Lord, what opportunities do you want me to utilize today to serve you, to gift you, to show kindness to you by showing it to people who bear your image? What are the opportunities? Even if you're stuck at home with little kids who don't know how to thank you, or if you're stuck at home with a sickness that means your body doesn't work right, what is the Lord's assignment to me? He's assigned this role to me. To participate by giving honor to him, even when I can't do what I want. I submit to what he wants and find life in doing it. When we give up our lives, we're told, we gain them. J.D. Vance has written this book called Hillbilly Elegy, which is a word that hillbillies do not use. Elegy is a lament. And he talks about his time after having grown up in Appalachia, fatherless, with a mean grandma who was awesome, and a mother who had a drug problem. He says he joined the Marine Corps. And he said the Marine Corps assumes maximum ignorance from its enlisted folks, which is great. It assumes that no one ever taught you anything about physical fitness, personal hygiene, or personal finances. I took mandatory classes about balancing a checkbook, saving, and investing. And he goes on to say that what would happen in the Marine Corps when I was early there as an enlisted man. I had $1,500 saved up, and I was trying to figure out what to do with it. And my commanding officer said, don't be an idiot. Put it in the Navy Federal Credit Union. And when I went to go buy a car, and I wanted to buy this BMW, my commanding officer said, don't be an idiot. Buy a Honda instead. Don't buy a BMW. And he sent somebody to make sure I bought the Honda. And when I went to deal with the dealer, and he offered me a 21% rate on my loan for the car, he said, don't be an idiot. Go shop that loan somewhere else. Go to the credit union. And I never even knew you could shop a loan. I was just astounded that people were willing to give me one. And when I had strep throat, and I was trying to tough it out, my commanding officer said, don't be an idiot. Go to the doctor. And I got well. 
Deborah is called in this poem a mother of Israel. The New Testament invites us to remember that our older brother has looked down on our idiocy, on our need of remediation when it comes to even being a human. How are we supposed to relate to money? How are we supposed to relate to our bodies and other bodies? How are we supposed to forgive? How are we supposed to do our work? And he has given us his word like he gave it to Deborah. He's given it to us in the scriptures and commanded us, this is the way, walk in it. And he's given us many mothers of Israel and fathers as well, and brothers and sisters to help us learn how not to be idiots. How do we walk as God intended? Well, it's by participating in it. As we respond to his invitation to collaborate with him, just as Barak was invited, just as Deborah was invited, just as Jael was invited to crush the enemies of God. So we are invited by God saying to us through Jesus Christ, you are my body. And every single one of you has been placed just as I wanted. Now go out into the world prayerfully, expectantly, collaborating with me, looking to see how we might put down evil together. How we might show our enemies good like our Father does. Because Christ has been crushed himself for our enemy status so that we could become friends. Go out into the world today. Go out into the world tomorrow to corroborate with God through faith and see what might happen. This is the way of life. Walk in it. Amen.